Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. On the show this week, a long-awaited consultation into defined benefit funding from the Department for Work and Pensions paves the way for the new DB Funding Code's introduction, we hope, next year. That, of course, pending a consultation from the pensions regulator and responses to both consultations and on the assumption that nothing goes horribly wrong in the meantime. We'll kick off by exploring this new tome and asking how big a challenge it will be to implement. Next up, everybody likes a jovial nudge, but push people too hard and they are liable to sock you in the mouth. And seven defined benefit schemes have duly taken a swing at the Department for Work and Pensions over its stronger nudge plans, or at least asked the Work and Pensions Committee to take a swing on their behalf. They argue that the stronger nudge requirements, especially as they pertain to additional voluntary contributions and hybrid schemes, are not fit for purpose. And we will ask whether they are right. And if so, what needs to be done to mend relations? Finally, and prompted by the news that Aon has finished winding up the last of its Maxwell pension schemes with a £483,000 write-off from the government, we thought we'd take this opportunity to do a quick retrospective. Much time and many reforms have passed since Maxwell disappeared on his yacht, never to be seen again. What has the industry learned from its chastening experience? And with the glut of new regulations coming into force, are we sufficiently seized of the need to guard our pensions against chances and fixes and general wrongdoers? I'm Benjamin Mercer, Senior Reporter at Pensions Expert. I am joined today by Laura McLaren, Partner and Scheme Actuary at Hyman's Robertson, and by Richard Butcher, now Client Director, Pension Trustee and Governance at Zedra. Thank you both very much for joining me. And uh, we will kick off, I think, with the DB funding consultation. The headline seems to be schemes are going to be required to ensure they are in a position of low dependency on their sponsoring employer by the time they are significantly mature. The way in which maturity itself is to be measured will change, and new rules regarding trustee chairs and multi-employer schemes are also included. The consultation has palmed off some of the work setting out the detail to the pensions regulator's own consultation, but I thought we would begin by asking what precisely we can glean thus far. And Laura, do you want to kick us off here? That's a very broad, sketchy overview of this. What are the details? I mean, I suppose the first thing to note is it was good to see that the regulations land. I think it is a pretty important step um, after we've had sort of so many delays. They've been a long time coming. And as you say, they do pave the way for, I think, the regulator to, to launch its consultation on the second code. And at least there's a sense that that's going to keep plans on track for the codes to eventually launch next year. You know, I think the point of interest for me is really, um, I guess, that the regulations look set to sort of establish, you know, where this balance between regulation and sort of TPR guidance is struck. Um, And I think that is quite a difficult balance. You know, I think if you compare it to current legislation, then certainly this is much more prescriptive, goes a lot further than what we have at the moment. That, I guess, was the intention. Um, So, I mean, I suppose the regulatory driver behind all of this was to make it easier for for TPR to be able to intervene if it felt they need to and be able to use the powers, which I guess the observation was that that had been quite difficult with terms like prudent and appropriate left fairly open for interpretation. You mentioned that, I guess, this prescription does sort of introduce these concepts of scheme maturity, um, sort of low dependency investment allocations, low dependency funding bases. So we're sort of seeing that schemes are being expected to follow this sort of gradual de-risking approach towards a sort of highly resilient, broadly cash flow matched investment strategy over a time frame that I guess they're saying is going to be defined by TPR. I think in the main, that is what a lot of schemes are doing. And I, and I doubt that many would sort of argue against the idea that 
maturing schemes um, should be on a pathway to limiting the risk that they're taking uh, and reducing the reliance on the employer as they become mature. But it certainly could have the potential to constrain some schemes out there. Um, and I guess, you know, you alluded to that being a bit of the, the industry reaction is that that prescription could become a bit more of a, a constraint with it being sort of baked into the letter of the law. In some ways, when you sort of read it cold, it doesn't feel that different to sort of writing down good best practice today. You know, I think if you take the current regs and what TPR have in their annual funding statements and in all of the sort of guidance, actually, this just sort of feels like a, a you know, a pretty consistent articulation of all of that. But it is that balance between how much of that is is now potentially being baked into law versus left to that that guidance point. The statements were very much at pains to sort of say this isn't intended to, to create a, a one-size-fits-all approach. And I mean, the regulator has been emphasising that, you know, under their code, they're sort of proposing these fast-track and bespoke routes. I mean, there was a lot of reaction on the, the back of the initial consultation around the sense that bespoke wasn't really going to be bespoke or, or the sort of degree of flexibility that was going to be possible down that route. I guess they're saying that that there will be scheme-specific flexibility. I do think that debate has a bit further to run um, myself and I think the regs you know, are sort of going to thrust that back into focus again around you know, how much flexibility will, will there be. I think everyone will be watching pretty closely for TPR's consultation to, to start you know, kind of being able to get more of a sense of of how it's all going to come together. Sure thing, and um, just so obviously that that covers a large part of the um, low dependency strategy. Mm-hmm. The, the the other term that that everything seems dependent on is significant maturity. And Richard, has this consultation set out precisely what is meant by significant maturity and when it's reached and how it's measured, or is that one of those areas that's being left to the regulator? No, it does actually define what significant maturity is although there is an open question about where that definition will sit, should it be in the regulations or should it be in the code of practice? Personally, in that respect, I think it should be in the code of practice because that allows a little bit more flexibility. If it's defined in law, it's defined in law. You have no choice but to comply. In the code of practice, at the very least, you can go to the regulator and say, in our case, because of these mitigating, um, we should be interpreting it in a slightly different way. So it gives a bit more flexibility. I mean, on the wider question, Benjamin, I mean, I'd echo a lot of, uh, of what Laura said. You said at the top, long-awaited, and thank goodness for this. It's not just long-awaited. This has been possibly glacial or positively glacial. It's been just ages coming. The thing's been hanging over us a little bit like the sword of Damocles. So it's, you know, it's great that finally, finally, they've codified what a lot of good schemes have been doing for a very, very long time. I think it's really positive that we've taken this step forward. It's just blooming well about time. There are some challenges in there, but let's not nitpick. This is a step in the general right direction for the vast majority of schemes. That maturity point's outstanding. We'll need to stress test that as well, because I, you know, there's always the risk of unintended consequences once you've defined something. But if it's in a code of practice, then that gives us a bit of latitude. I do query whether the low dependency investment strategy might be the government taking the first step on a slippery slope of dictating how trustees invest their assets. There is the question of a bit more bureaucracy for DB trustees having to write a statement of strategy. But on balance here, I think that's not a bad thing. It's just about keeping the regulator informed. 
So there's been a lot of detail left to the code of practice. You know, I began my answer by saying, thank goodness that they've made some progress on this. We've now got to make some progress on the code of practice. The first draft was frankly rubbish and it was frankly roundly attacked by the industry. So I'm hoping that the second draft will be much better and much improved and I'm sure it will be. And just one final observation on this. Uh, Benjamin, and linking this together uh, with the Maxwell retrospective we'll get to later on. Isn't it interesting how far we have moved with this and what's being described here uh, and how it contrasts with the old minimum funding requirement or MFR from Pension Tech 1995. We are light years ahead of where we were back then and this is much, much better than what was being considered way back then in 1995. That's encouraging to hear, I suppose, um, especially for the uh, the old Maxwell scheme members, although they might have asked why it wasn't in place at the time. Uh, if we look forward, um, obviously, we we're talking about a lot of things being contingent on, on the regulators' consultation. I think that's due in the autumn. Besides not being rubbish, what are we looking for from the uh, the regulators' consultation? And Laura, I'll come to you on this. What, what would you look to see to improve the second draft of this code of practice? So I suppose to improve it, I think there is this question around the bespoke route and exactly how that'll work. There wasn't a lot of detail around actually ITPR would look to enforce that, the sort of rationale that schemes would need to offer up um, and what was going to be permissible. So I think that that will definitely be something that we, we watch with interest. In truth, I think most people have an eye on what the fast track parameters are going to be, you know, certainly in terms of decision making and having a sense of, you know, is your current funding plan going to sort of fit down that route? It's been a really interesting period, I guess, if you sort of reflect back to when TPR launched that first consultation at the sort of start of 2020, you know, over that point, we're now sort of post-COVID, post-Brexit, we've got kind of the current macroeconomic headwinds. Actually, it's been quite a sort of volatile period for them to be trying to, to pin down those, those final parameters. In the initial consultations, you know, there probably was a sense that they might need to be a bit more flexible to be something that's achievable. The world shifted a bit. Actually, we've seen funding kind of improve quite a lot over that period of time. Maybe we will start to see some of those parameters be pinned down, you know, a bit closer to, to what was muted in that first consultation. As I say, I think, you know, that's the bit that will be interesting to, to start seeing what, what some of the numbers are to this. You know, the regs very much still principles based, not much around the specific metrics around, you know, what a low dependency funding basis might be and what TPR would look for in terms of of that basis. Right. Um, we'll move on from uh, from that then um, to a complaint from a number of significant uh, defined benefit schemes this week. Uh, those schemes include the BT pension scheme, uh, the university superannuation scheme, uh, TPT retirement solutions, BP pension fund, the mine workers pension scheme going back to caves, uh, British coal staff superannuation scheme and the Royal Mail Pension Plan, they've all written to the Work and Pensions Committee begging for an intervention over their fears that the plan's uh, nudges, the stronger nudge, is not fit for purpose, and specifically as it interacts with AVCs and hybrid schemes. They fear that that will cause undue confusion. Are they right? Richard, I'll come to you first, if that's all right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can understand their concerns. Let's go back to first principles here. There are a number of key decision points that um, members are faced with where they can materially affect the outcome of their pension savings. Joining, how much they contribute, how they invest, and at retirement, there's a lot of evidence to show that members can do a lot of harm to their outcomes by making the wrong or suboptimal 
decisions at retirement. So the stronger nudge is just about trying to provide members with more information so that they are more likely to make informed decisions, which we hope will be more optimal at that point in retirement. So generally, again, this is something that should be welcomed. But as is ever the case with these things, a set of sweeping regulations can't capture every single set of circumstances, and hence the concerns that have been expressed by these particular schemes. I mean, I agree with them. The answer isn't not to direct people towards PensionsWise. The answer is to make sure that PensionsWise can provide those members with the right types of information to be able to make informed decisions. PensionsWise is a great, great service, but it's not perfect. It needs a lot more work. It probably needs more resource if all of these people are going to be talking to them. But it is about ensuring that PensionsWise is adequately up to speed so that it can provide the guidance that it needs so that members can make more informed decisions. I have a different gripe about this, which is that the rules are different for contract-based and trust-based pension schemes. Now, I I don't think I'm unique in this, but I have both trust-based pensions and I have contract-based pensions. I'm going to be getting closer to my retirement. I'm getting closer closer to it all of the time, but I'm getting closer to retirement. And when I get to that point of retirement, I'm going to be nudged in different ways, depending on which of my pensions I'm looking at. And that's going to lead to confusion and possible disengagement on the part of members. So my gripe is that we need to try to pull those two nudge uh, strategies together. So the contract-based and trust-based members are dealt with in a consistent way, it's not their fault which ones they're in, so just that they're dealt with in a consistent way and can make informed decisions across the piece. Sure thing. And Laura, do you want to, to come in here? I know when, when we wrote our story up on this, um, Henry Tapper said that pension-wise itself wasn't geared uh, to deal with the, the, the level of granularity that, that's involved uh, in the different types of scheme. Mm-hmm. He he suggested that, that the, I'll quote him directly, he said, the schemes mentioned all invest substantially in member communications. They really should be exempt from nudging members uh, to pension-wise. Is an exemption the solution uh, to your mind, or is there a way of expanding pension-wise or making it better equipped to deal with the, the granularities? I think you know an, an exemption is certainly an option. I'm not sure most would sort of dispute the idea that sort of helping members and giving them more advice and helping to educate them about benefit choices is, is a bad thing. But but like Richard, you know, I think it's hard to disagree with some of the concerns or, or challenges that are being highlighted. And I think when you look at it, these rules, they do seem more proportionate in a sort of DC arena. I think when you then do sort of look at how they translate across to the sort of more DB hybrid world and we're maybe talking about benefits like sort of additional voluntary contributions then I think it they, they do operate less well um, and I guess there are sort of concerns around whether that advice actually will capture all the nuances around those benefits and the interaction you know in DB schemes around being able to take EVCs as, as tax-free cash and the fact that that might be in, in a member's best interest. A lot of these concerns were all raised sort of through the initial consultations and and I guess things pushed ahead. So whether we'll see a change, I think is probably questionable. Right now, it all feels a bit early to tell a a couple of months in, in terms of really how we're geared up pensions wise is, I mean, it it doesn't seem to have come sort of crashing to its knees. Um, But as I say, it is pretty early days, probably in terms of getting a sense around how many members are going to take up those options, what the rate of opt-out is, you know, how much it genuinely feels like it is improving the the situation. I I think it's setting an incredibly high bar for pensions-wise to be able to 
answer every member's question on every single aspect of retirement. There are financial advisors who have gone through years of training who still can't do that. And, you know, I've been working in the industry for 34 years and my friends will ask me questions that I don't understand or don't know the answer to. So to my mind, pensions wise isn't about necessarily answering all of the questions, but helping the member to identify the questions that are relevant to them. And if pensions wise can't answer that question, then pointing them in the direction that they should go to find an answer to that question. As for setting an exemption to those schemes with good communication strategies, look, superficially, that's a sensible idea. But the devil's in the detail. How do you define? Where do you draw the line? Who's going to judge whether a communication strategy is good, bad or indifferent? Uh, Maybe Henry. Maybe he's going to do that for every scheme in the land. I think you either do this for everybody or you don't do it at all. And given that don't doing it at all would give significant harm to members, let's do this for everybody. If it complements a scheme's excellent communication strategy, fantastic. Well, I mean, it would give Henry plenty of work to do, a job for life, I think, if that were the, the state of affairs. But um, on the theory that that's not necessarily the top priority for pension schemes, I think we'll, um, we will move on finally then to uh, the news that Aon has completed the wind-up of its, the last of its Maxwell schemes. The government did have to write off around £483,000 pertaining to the AGB pension scheme. But interesting though that specific situation is, I thought this might be a nice opportunity, especially since we've got the new funding code consultation out and the other consultations to follow, to take a broad look at the health and security of DB in general and ask whether we've done enough now to ensure there will not be any more Maxwells in the future. And Richard, I know since you brought this up earlier and how, how different the state of play is now to as it was then, are you encouraged that, that enough has been done? How have we completely put to bed any prospect of a return to sort of Maxwell era pension scandals? I mean, I don't suppose we've put to bed all pension scandals. Those who are scandalous are, are very inventive at finding new ways of creating scandal. I mean, you know, at the moment we're dealing with pension scams and the rise in the number of pension scams. That's just another scandal in another way. But specifically, Maxwell, yes, I mean, I think the things that were done back then, the Pension Act 1995, have by and large removed the risks of specifically what Maxwell did, which was to misappropriate through encouraging his sons, the trustees, to invest pension fund money directly into the business. The self-investment regulations specifically banned that. There were other things in there that were good changes at the time. The introduction of member-nominated trustees. They've been around for years now. They bring an invaluable uh, contribution to the governance of schemes. And of course, they're a great safety net for trying to avoid employers doing you know, inappropriate things. But some of the stuff, yeah, has fallen a little bit by the wayside. As, as we mentioned earlier on, MFR was an attempt to introduce a minimum funding requirement. It was absolutely ridiculous. It was so watered down at the time that it was pointless and actually arguably did harm because too many employers pointed at it and said, this is the funding standard that's now required, so that's all I need to comply with. But on balance, it did good things. The Pensions Act 1995 did good things. My only caveat, and and, this is arguing the same or or the opposite side of exactly the same coin, we do have now a very well-regulated environment for defined benefit pension schemes. It's so well regulated, there isn't an employer in the land who wants to have an open DB scheme that doesn't have the state as its sponsor. Well, maybe not any, but there are very, very few. Back in 1995, it was incredibly common for people to be in a defined benefit pension scheme, actively accruing benefits. Now, it's very, very rare. So 
The Pensions Act 1995 might have created a fantastic environment, but it's a fantastically regulated environment that benefits no one. Excellent. Well, in that case, I think one one final question on this. I know, I know I'm slightly pushing the time boundary here, but uh, we've talked a lot about how this pertains to DB schemes. And of course, as Richard just said, DB schemes are sort of on the way out, or it certainly seems they are on the way out unless, of course, they are state sponsored. Have any lessons been learned that carry through to DC then and to CDC when that comes in? Is equivalent attention being paid to ensure that there is no scandal in those areas? Um, is there even a risk of scandal in those areas in the same way as, as uh, we did see with DB? Um, Laura, if you want to kick us off on this one. Yeah, I mean, I guess fundamentally the challenges are different, um, the sort of DB and DC stuff and, you know, the, the sort of Maxwell piece around um, sort of plundering the pension scheme assets, you know, I guess in a lot of ways that's been re- removed in, in a sort of DC world, you know, I suppose reflecting back on our previous discussion around the, the stronger nudge stuff, it, you know, it feels like that's the focus around sort of protecting members from scammers. And I, I think that sort of scam risk is just one of these ongoing um, challenges and sort of guidance and efforts are going to need to continue to evolve because as we know, sort of scammers just will get more and more sophisticated <laughs> um, in terms of their, their approaches. So yeah, I, I guess probably all of this, the sort of focus and development in that area is pretty reflective of that as, as being a, a kind of key challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think that the nature of the risks in DC is different and the Pensions Act 1995 doesn't speak specifically to those risks. Uh, and Pensions Act 1995 was all about DB schemes, although some of the some of the rules applied equally across member nominated trustees being one example. The risks in CDC are very different, and I think some of the lessons learnt in, in the Pensions Act 1995 might well be carried across that, particularly around the prudency of the funding. There's a very strange set of risks in CDC, so you know, we do need to be very careful and make sure that we create a robust framework for that. But just on the wider point, I think it'd be a very, very brave person who would say there'll never be another scandal in CDC, DC, or even DB. Scammers, scandalous people are, are very inventive, very creative. If the motivation is strong enough, then they'll find some misdemeanor that they'll commit to their benefit and to the loss of a lot of members. So diligent trustees are incredibly important. Good message on which to end the principal part of the programme. It forced us only to ask whether there is always a pensions angle for us uh, this week. Richard, I think you said you might have one. Oh, well, I don't know. I mean, it's just a general point. I'm at a point in my life where everything's got a pensions angle because it's, it's, it's life, death, it's birth, it's marriage. I get now asked about pensions when I'm sitting beside a beach, when I'm in a bar, when you know, in a swimming pool, uh, in a sauna, even in the boxing ring just recently I was asked about pensions. So you know, pensions are all around us. They are a really important thing. It's about providing security to people at a time in their life when they need that security. So can't give you a particular hashtag, always a pensions angle, Benjamin, but pensions are everything. Pensions are everything. Well, as, as pensions expert, that's what we like to hear. Keeps us in work. In which case, that brings us to the close of the programme. So I want to thank Richard and Laura for joining us. Thank you to our listeners for listening to us. As ever, we will be back in two weeks' time, and we hope we'll see you then. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.